Hello, everybody. Josh Neighbors here, Locked On Nationals podcast. We back, and so are the Nationals, as they take on the Mets for two games tonight. This episode will be broken up into two parts. First is going to be my preview of Mets and Nats from Nats Park, two games in a midweek series, and then my conversation with CBS Sports, R.J. Anderson, my early candidate for MVP this season. R.J. has been killing the game, making appearances on the CBS Evening News our guy, he was, uh, he's been a good friend of the show, all over this Cardinal story. We're going to talk about that, Rob Manfred's response to the uh, two-team outbreaks that we've seen so far. A whole lot to get to on today's show. Hope you guys enjoy. 3-2 to Suzuki. Kurt Suzuki! See you later! The Nets have won it! Seven runs in the bottom of the ninth! This is deep to center field. Bellinger's back. It's a grand slam. Howie Kendrick with a 10th inning grand slam to break it open. The former Dodger breaking hearts in Los Angeles. The kick in. Here it comes. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books. The celebration is on. The Washington Nationals are the world champions. You are listening to the Locked On Nationals podcast, your one-stop shop for news, analysis, and conversation surrounding your reigning, undisputed World Series champion, Washington Nationals. Now, here's your host, Josh Neighbors. Hello, everybody. Josh Neighbors here, Locked On Nationals podcast. Part one of a two-part show today. This is going to be a Nationals-Mets series preview. The second part is going to be R.J. Anderson of CBS Sports. He and I had a great conversation. He has been all over this Cardinals outbreak story. I get the scoop from him. We also talk about Rob Manfred and how he is not inspiring confidence in many writers, fans, and players right now, and a whole lot more. R.J. was very, very gracious with his time um, because he is very busy right now. Check him out. At CBS Sports. But, friends, colleagues, fans of the Washington Nationals, we have ball to talk about. After a long hiatus, I guess you could say, the Nationals had their first seven games in the books. And they a weekend off courtesy of the carelessness of the Florida Marlins. Excuse me, the Miami Marlins. With that now, the, the Nats are going to host the New York Mets for two games, a midweek series. Steven Nats, Patrick Corbin are going to go in game one. Nats has looked pretty pretty good so far this season. An 11 innings pitch, 3.18 ERA, 10 hits, 10 strikeouts. The walk numbers are down just three. He's also given up three home runs, too. That could be an area where the Nationals could get to him a little bit if they can get the uh, long ball going. Patrick Corbin, excellent in that first start against the Yankees. Six and one, one-third innings pitch, eight Ks, two hits, the one home run was given up as well, too. So really fun pitching matchup. Uh, Mats, you know, if you're a Mets fan trying to see if he is, uh, you know, his resurgence. Corbin, you want to see if he can keep that mojo going after that first game. And the Nationals coming to this one, three and four, have been one and four at home so far. Technically, they get the two wins against the Blue Jays at home. So uh, really, they're actually three and four at home. But for home game purposes, they are one and four as the home team. The Mets come off a series against the Braves. It was four in Atlanta. The Mets only got one win. That was last night. 
Mike Soroka left that game with a, an Achilles injury. He's going to be out for the year, so the Mets got to him early. They finally got that offense going. They got it going earlier in the series, but somehow they were not able to come away. Yeah, that first game in the series was an 11-10 loss, and the Mets gave up, I believe, a three-run lead. Later in that game, the offense sputtered. They scored one run and no runs against the Braves in the following two. Were able to put up seven on the board last night. Get Actually get Jacob DeGrom a win, which they don't usually do. One thing coming into this series is the injuries. That's kind of where you have to look as we go into this series. And once again, the pitching matchup tomorrow night is going to be Porcello and Scherzer. Tonight's game is going to be on ESPN for those of you who are curious. But looking at the injuries, obviously, Yoannis Cespedes is off. He's, he is now out of the team, not with the team. He opted out and decided not to tell anybody. Very classic Yoannis Cespedes move. Jeff McNeil was scratched yesterday. Has been very good to start off the season in terms of hitting. Not great in the field. Ahmed Rosario is day-to-day. He left the game last night with an injury, as did Robinson Cano. So it'll be interesting to see the lineup moves. I am recording this at 12.28 Eastern Standard Time here on Tuesday, August 4th. So we'll see what the Mets do lineup-wise, because last night they kind of they pieced it together a bit. I mean, a lot of the usual suspects, but it was kind of odd. You know, you think about the lineup they had to patch together last night. Still very formidable. I, I like this Mets lineup. I'm pretty high on it. They've got to get more consistent pitching for the Nats. Will Harris, 10-day IL. I mean, he has been off to a rough start for Harris. Steven Strasburg's day-to-day. They're hoping to get him back this weekend against the Orioles. Howie Kendrick, day-to-day as of August 2nd, as is Eric Thames. Not sure about their status. So I think for both lineups, what you want to see is who's available. And this is something that we're seeing across sports that are restarting, specifically in hockey and baseball, is the injury bug has gotten to a lot of teams. Keeping your guys healthy is going to be crucial moving forward for both these teams. The Mets at 4-7 and seven desperately need to start playing well against teams in this division. RJ Anderson and I are a bit, um, you know, we're both skeptical about how long the season goes, but it's continued. And, you know, if they're going to keep playing these games, the Nationals, you know, this is a great place to maybe bury the Mets and also get themselves some safer standing right now in that uh, National League East. The Braves really have done a good job of beating up on the Mets. They played uh, the Mets seven times in their first uh, six, or excuse me, in their first eleven games. They beat the Mets four times. So the Braves have a nice little cushion right now. The Nationals have a chance here to once again kind of send the Mets back, and the, and the Phillies are struggling with this really difficult East schedule as well too. So. A couple important games coming up here for the Nats. If they can bring some of that momentum from last week into this week, and it's funny, you know, you're kind of hoping the Nats would be able to play the Marlins, especially how their offense was playing after, uh, excuse me, in, in the last two games of that series. You were hoping that they'd be able to have another game and carry that in. We'll see if the Nats' offense can, is, is going to stall tonight or if they can pick up right where they left off. And, oh, I forgot to mention, Juan Soto is going to be back in the lineup tonight. Um, a whole lot of tweeting about him. Uh, being back in the lineup, and it should be interesting to see what he brings. But that's one of the, he's one of those special players. And I know it's pretty easy to say, but he's one of those special players who can kind of just show up, and you know you don't expect great things, but you might see them just because of how gifted he is. And um, I I applaud his resolve for a 20, 21 year old young man through this experience. You know he's young; he probably feels invincible. You know the the false positive tests, but he still hung in there and said, "I will, I will," you know follow all the protocols, follow all the rules. And as soon as he uh, was let go, he let back out you know, of quarantine and allowed to rejoin the team, 
He was flying around this weekend by all indications. So Nationals minus 145 favorite tonight in the first game, 7 p.m. Uh, ESPN also to you know other places that you can catch it. So should be an exciting series. I'm curious to see what each team brings from a pitching standpoint and what their lineups look like. Those are really the two big questions considering injuries and whatnot. That is part one of this podcast. Part two is coming up. My interview with RJ Anderson. Hope you all enjoy that. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's Locked On Nationals podcast is brought to you by Postmates. If you're like me, you think about dinner while you're eating lunch. I love food, and that is why I love Postmates. I love Postmates even more right now because they have contactless delivery. And obviously, with the current state of the world, very beneficial to have that contactless delivery. And also, they don't just deliver burgers and sushi. They actually make your life a bit easier by getting you things from Walgreens, 7-Eleven, whatever you need. They drop it off outside your door. No contact needed. Just download the Postmates app for iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for the first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDON. That's code LOCKEDON for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it. Postmates it. Joining me today, my friend and yours, RJ Anderson of CBS Sports. RJ, many people have uh, talked about their early season MVPs so far, and I think, uh, I think you're at the top of my list uh, <laughs> in terms of Major League Baseball. You have been, um, you have been putting out work in, in, uh, like a machine. I mean, you have been all over this Cardinal story. Um, you, I mean, you made an appearance on the CBS Evening News. I mean, look, you've been you've been doing it all recently. How are you? How are you holding up? First of all, yeah, it's, it's been a busy few weeks, and I am thankful to those good folks at CBS Evening News for allowing me to solely their reputation by showing just a few <laughs> seconds of me. So it's been a very interesting experience. Uh, highs and lows mixed in, and you know. It's just been a weird experience. I guess the entire year has been a weird experience. So just a continuation of that. Yeah. So uh, I, I want to start with this. I mean, this Cardinal story, um, it was funny. I was actually in a group chat with, with a bunch of people. I'm working a, a broadcasting camp right now. And somebody put in a CBS sports uh, MLB story and I opened it up and lo and behold, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it is RJ Anderson uh, with the scoop. And so this, this Cardinal story, you, you've been all over it. Um, so Tell me about, you know, what you know, when you kind of first started getting rumblings of, of you know, um, uh, the tests obviously were, were a, you know, a big indication, but kind of, you know, how this was a Marlins-like scenario. This felt very much in the vein of what the Marlins, uh, would occur with the Marlins earlier last week. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, whenever you see a pair of positive tests from the same team, I think you're antennas have to go up, right? Because that's how it starts. And once you get word that there are maybe four or five positive tests, you're basically already in a full-blown outbreak situation. And we saw with the Marlins how quickly four tests can turn into 10, and then how quickly that can turn into 18 or 20 or wherever their total number ended up. So you just have to be very cognizant of how this virus works and how infectious diseases work especially when they're airborne and especially when they're given uh, ample conditions to transmit and to incubate. So, you know, keeping those things in mind, as soon as you saw that the Cardinals had two pitchers test positive and then a few staff members, yeah, you kind of had this feeling and it's not a good feeling to have. You would prefer not to have to worry about these things, but yeah, you had the feeling that this could be a bad situation and 
you know, it's unfortunate that we're all having to learn about, you know, how infectious diseases work like this and how outbreaks happen. But it's been interesting in an educational aspect, even if it is really bad from a human cost perspective. So uh, getting, you know, I, I saw um, yesterday, John Mazeliak says uh, the players going to the casino was, uh, you know, something that he's got no factual reason to believe that is true was the direct quote. So um, I just want to know from your side, you know, what is, what is, what have you been hearing? What are, you know, what are this, what is the stuff that you can actually tell us about what we do know about this Cardinal situation, about how it started, how it came up, maybe a timeline of, of when these events occurred, you know, if, if you could share some of that information. Yeah, I mean, the idea that a player or players plus staff or what have you had visited a Minnesota casino was out there. Uh, I can't tell you for a fact that it happened. You know, I obviously wasn't there and I don't know anyone who was, you know, right there with them, but that rumor had certainly been out there. And so whether that's true or not, you know, I think that we need the league to do a proper investigation, not to punish anyone, not to publicly shame anyone, but to do an investigation so that they can learn more about their system in place and the processes in place and where those failures are coming from. You know, if it's just a matter of some careless behavior here and there, okay, it's helpful to know that. And if it's a matter of the system not preventing one infected individual from spreading it to an entire team or, you know, 10 individuals or what have you, then it's helpful to know that too. So I think that there are kind of camps who want MLB to investigate this and then punish those individuals. And I don't think that's particularly helpful. And I don't think that publicly shaming them and naming them is particularly helpful either. I think the league really needs to do a better job of education and helping the individuals involved make better risk management decisions. And at the same time, it really needs to be consistently and constantly evaluating the systems in place so that anything that can be prevented will be prevented. And I think that we're seeing the league play catch up in regard, you know, hiring compliance officers, what last week, I mean, that seems like something that should have been in place before we ever, ever attempted to play a regular season. So if they're going to continue on with the season, I really would like to see them do a thorough investigation just to inform their processes and their system. Uh, and it's interesting you break that you bring that up because you know that's the one thing that that I think has been discussed is that you know how the health and safety was the last thing that got hammered out when they when they kind of came to this agreement. I, I want to ask you because because you know I, I kind of go back and forth on this about that punishment point you just brought up. Um, it is my opinion that there's there's a lot on the line for Major League Baseball here in a after the labor fight that they had. If you coupled that with a disastrous ending of a season. Like we, I mean, you know, I we were messaging the other day, and I said, "Will we make it to Monday?" And you said, "I'm not even sure Rob Manfred does." <laughs> and we're sitting here on Tuesday. So my question to you is, um, why shouldn't parties be punished? You know, it, it's it's one of those things where you you think about the scheduling standpoint now. Like they're having to do some scheduling jujitsu to to you know, I'm not even sure how they if they know how they're going to um, figure out if all the games are going to be made up. Uh, what percentages are going to be used to, to define playoffs, you know, if every game is not made up. So when you think about what the players compromised in terms of the league's, you know, ability to make money and also, you know, to actually have games, why do you think players should not be, uh, the players shouldn't be punished? I'm just, just out of curiosity. Well, I think you have to 
be mindful of the circumstances, right? You know, we're in a pandemic situation and frankly, we probably shouldn't even be trying to play baseball. So I think you have to keep that in mind. You also have to think about human nature. And when you start saying, oh, we're going to punish you if, if you're caught that you, you know, left your hotel room or whatever, that kind of does something to us where it makes us want to rebel a little bit more, right? And I think that it's very important that this doesn't become a never confrontational situation between the league and the players. I think that that's one of the downfalls of that prolonged negotiation between the sides is that there was no cooperation and that there was no sense of we're all in this together. There was no, you know, bending. It was all about, you know, one side wanting all of the rope and not sharing the rope, so to speak. So in this case, I think it would be very easy to create an environment of distrust or fervor distrust. And I think it would be very easy to create an environment where individuals are more likely to rebel if you turn this into some kind of Old Testament style punitive system. You know, that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to try to coerce buy-in, to clearly educate the players on what is a high risk activity or behavior versus what's a more manageable risk or behavior. And remember, you know, this is not just a matter of these next 60 games or however many games in the postseason. The odds are we are not going to be back to normal at the beginning of next season. And if you're wanting to not only play this season, but also at least begin next season, you're going to have to have a better system in place. And it's not just going to be the typical conventional system. You really do have to work at this. And I think that, you know, positioning the players as the bad guys or positioning them as children or positioning them as basically future criminals in a baseball sense is not help, not helpful. And also it's going to lead to more infractions and to more headache for the league. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, you know, predicament because I have seen that some players have been frustrated as well too with other players. So, you know, I'm wondering if they're going to try to, in some way, I mean, sort of that amongst themselves. But um, in terms of that scheduling, have, have you heard anything about how the league plans on either making up these games or, um, you know, what they're going to do standings-wise? Has there been any movement on that front yet? Yeah, I think the belief is that there's going to be a few things here. You know, number one, not every team is going to end up playing 60 games, and it's possible that no team ends up playing 60 games. You know, we still very much – at an uncertain spot in terms of whether the season gets played to completion. But assuming it does, I think that you'll see the league try to get everyone close to 60 games through double headers and some of these ever scheduled tweaks. I mean, just this week we had what five teams, I believe who had their schedules tweaked because of COVID-19 breakouts or because of complications therefrom. So you know, I think they're going to continue to be very aggressive with double headers, and you're going to see teams, you know, play these uh, series where you split the home games. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe the Yankees and the Orioles will play four games at Yankee Stadium, including a double header or what have you, over three days. And the Yankees will be the home team for half of those games, and then the Orioles will be the home team for the other half. So that's kind of a creative approach that takes away the need for traveling and since you don't have any fans in the stands in theory you're not necessarily suffering from that home field disadvantage um, on top of that I do believe they're going to resort to using winning percentage 
as a means of deciding who is for the postseason. And I think that's going to be fine, provided the games are mostly even. Now, if you have a situation where one team somehow did play 60 games and another team played, I don't know, 45, then that's probably not going to work, especially if a team with 45 has a, only a slight advantage in winning percentage. So you're going to need to get those numbers somewhat close in order for everyone to buy in. But I think that that combination of uh, adjustments that I just mentioned will probably be what drives them. I'll be going forward. One thing I want to ask you before I get you out of here is, is the, the comment. I found the comment by Rob Manfred about his resolve to be um, just empty in a sense. I mean, he said, you know, I'm not a quitter. I, I laughed when I read that because I, I was like, it's got nothing to this situation has, I mean, it's got something to do with Rob Manfred and his, I guess his personal resolve, but on the whole, his personal resolve and the spread of a glo- of a, of a pandemic amongst his players seem to be two completely unrelated things. And um, in my opinion, at least, I mean, they should be, if you look at it from an objective point of view, what did you make of that comment? Cause I just kind of, I just kind of chuckle when I read that and, and, you know, you know, be, I mean, whatever, whatever it's worth, I guess it's great. His personal resolve is high, but that's not what, that's not what's going to decide whether the season continues. Right. Yeah. I mean, it struck a bad chord with me for a few reasons. Yeah. Number one is because yes, you're not like, whether you're a quitter or not right. the pandemic, like the virus doesn't care. The virus doesn't care if you, you know, quit every obstacle that comes your way or whatever, the virus doesn't care about any of that. So let's leave the ego and let's leave, you know, the self uh, mythologizing, whatever. I don't even know. I can't even, I'm so worked up right now. I can't even talk, but let's leave the myth making to someone else at another time when we're not facing, you know, a a novel virus that seemingly has long-term effects. Uh, Beyond that, I mean, it's very easy, I think, for him to say that when he's not the one being exposed. He's not taking the risk that the players are taking, that the trainers are taking, the coaches and on down. And I think that he also needs to be mindful of the fact that this is a billion dollar industry. It is doing things that, you know, an average human being maybe would not be allowed to do in terms of its travel and some of its procedures. You know, we've seen local governments kind of bend to Major League Baseball's will throughout this in terms of the quarantine rules and stuff. So I think he needs to be mindful of the optics of, you know, coming out and beating his chest at a time when he's not really taking the risk. He's gotten his way for the most part and it's not working. And it just seems like whenever Manfred is pushed upon, be it by a reporter, be it by a virus or a government or what have you, this is kind of what happens, right? He responds with hubris. And I think that it's not, a great sign for, you know, baseball that this is his approach because again, it gets back to what I said earlier, this can create that distrustful environment. This can create a combative environment and what baseball really needs right now is a cooperative environment and a cooperative relationship between the league and the players because, you know, the players have to buy in and the league needs to be able to communicate and have their trust when they say, you know, guys, we can't have you going outside of the hotel like you usually do for dinner or for drinks or what have you. It's just not going to work if you do that. But right now it doesn't seem like they have that kind of relationship where the players will actually take that advice and, you know, treat it for what it is. It almost seems like, you know, you have two parties basically within baseball right now and there's no cooperation. So I don't know. I, it's not a good sign. I don't think. And, uh, 
I don't know. I don't have high hopes for the season playing being played to completion. And frankly, it probably shouldn't be anyway, right? We probably shouldn't have even attempted it. Right. And I think what's interesting is whenever I think about commissioners in sports, I always think about them. There's, there's kind of, you have to look at them two ways, right? In one way, they're, they're representing the league and the ownership. And the other is just kind of them as, you know, what they do publicly. So Adam Silver is a great example with the, I mean, you might not agree with his, um, you know, with their defense of China. And do I think Adam Silver on the whole is a, you know, is, is for what's happening in China and Hong Kong? No, I don't think so. But the businessman, Adam Silver, you know, could not come out and slam China. But at the same time, what does he do? He's very pro player and has, you know, been very open about trying to empower the players and these social justice messages. You think about Roger Goodell, people don't like him, but if you look at football as a, as a success, it is massively successful in this country. He's done a good job as of growing that game. When it comes to baseball, when his representation of the ownership, that seems to be competent to some extent, but also the public, you know, person that Rob Manfred is, he's failed in that regard. And he is, you know, it's not like, it feels like, I mean, it almost feels like whatever he does, it's not like people just bagging on him to bag on him. Like there is, there are so many legitimate gripes with the job he's done. And that's why I look at a league like the NBA and I've said this a bunch, but Lou Williams leaves the bubble and, and he goes to a strip club and we kind of laugh because we know he's going to go back to the bubble and get quarantined. And kind of that's that when it comes to the Marlins players and the, and the, and the Cardinals players, we've all been kind of losing our minds collectively because we don't trust the MLB like we trust the NBA. We don't trust, you know, uh, you know, I trust the NFL, quite frankly, more than I trust the MLB. And so I think it's, and I think a lot of that comes down to the commissioner. This, you know, it's, it's almost like a country. It's, it's like your trust in that league boils down to the public face of that league. And Manfred, like kind of what you've been saying is, you know, he's just got to bump it, you know, pump his chest and, and put his hubris, like you said, out there. And um, the, I think a lot of our, lack of confidence from whether the league or the, or the season is going to be completed stems from our impressions of its commissioner. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, the NBA, you know, Adam Silver is, if nothing else, very skilled at co-opting a message. And, you know, you mentioned the social justice things. Well, the players didn't necessarily seem to sign off on that list. You know, some players have said they would prefer to wear the names of victims of police brutality and whatnot. And, Somehow, you know, Silver just kind of paved over that and made it a league thing and made it kind of toothless in a sense. And I can't imagine Rob Manford pulling off that. And I'm not saying that commissioners should pull that off. I'm just right. saying in terms of like being a skillful diplomat and a skillful, uh, you know, PR image person or whatever, you're right. The Manford doesn't have that skill and he's not particularly great at managing the public image of himself of the league. And I think back to, you know, the Astros controversy, uh, the cheating scandal earlier this year. I mean, he handled that poorly as well, not just in terms of the punishment, but remember when, you know, he confronted that reporter and was like, yes, nice job getting an email. Well, you know, he's kind of lucky that the pandemic happened or otherwise you know, we probably would have uh, examined that a little more because that, you know, that email basically showed that, you know, what he had publicly released was not the full story. So yeah, I don't think he's as skilled at, a lot of those uh, different aspects that Adam Silver is and, you know, Roger Goodell, I'm not really familiar enough to say, but yeah, I think there's something to the idea that, you know, your league is only as trustworthy or as, uh, you know, I guess trustworthy is the, the word here, maybe as dependable as the public face of it. And Manfred, 
you know, say what you will. Uh, he does not have that reputation and he does not have that kind of trust right now, either with the public or seemingly with the players. And I don't know that he's ever going to have that kind of trust, frankly. And it's wild because I've actually seen people say, you know, I wish Bud Selig were still in charge. And <laughs> right. I don't know. I've, I've heard that too, which yeah, is crazy to think. Yeah, I don't know if I, it's just, you know, nostalgia. I don't know if it's just, you know, kind of that wistfulness that we all get about the past, but that is a wild sentiment given how unpopular C-League seemed throughout his tenure and especially at the end. So I don't know, maybe in 10, 15 years or whenever we'll be talking about how I wish Rob Manfred were still in charge, but you know, <laughs> fundamentally he does seem to be an unpopular type and I don't really know how he's going to improve it because remember we have labor talks upcoming after the 2021 season so things could actually get worse before they get better uh, it's like hard to imagine how it could get worse but they just kind of seeming seemingly it's, it's bizarre I mean I'm not sure how you feel and last thing RJ because I know you're busy but you know do you, I feel weird when I watch games now it's just, it, like you just you feel that large cloud I mean you forget about some of it, you know, but like when you watch a game, you know, a game that you're, uh, uh, that you're a fan of a certain team, like Yankees fans, they, I mean, they, they have to be excited from what they're seeing, but you know, they can only be so excited because there's this massive cloud hanging over everything that feels like, you know, the, the ax could be dropped any moment. Yeah. I mean, you're watching through the fog of the pandemic, right? You're right. watching through, you're like, you're never far separated from the reality of the moment and you know, the fake crowd noise and, the cardboard cutouts or the digital fans or whatever, you know, those are implemented to try to take you out of, try to, I guess it's really about suspension of disbelief, right? right. It's about yeah. losing yourself and it's about feeling like things are normal. Well, things are very much not normal. And despite the artificial efforts, I think it's probably a good thing from a human perspective that we're not able to fully engage and fully immerse ourselves in this because we need to be cognizant of what's going on and we need to be, you know, working toward improving things. So, you're right. You know, it, it makes for a weird season in terms of, you know, rooting for a team or just watching a game or covering it. It feels wrong when you're trying to treat this like a normal season. But I think that's a good thing as a whole. I think that says that, you know, we're not just able to kind of mindlessly go along and forget about everything, even if, you know, we would want a distraction right now, but maybe we don't need one, if that makes sense. Very eloquently put, RJ. I appreciate your time as always. Where can people find you? Uh, and where can they find the, uh, your uh, constant and very, very interesting, <laughs> very, I mean, I've been engaged reading your stuff uh, lately. It seems like you've always got a scoop. Where can the people find you? Yeah, you know, I used to say that the worst thing MLB ever did to me was make me learn the luxury tax rules. And nowadays, <laughs> it's actually because I've learned so much about infectious diseases. But uh, I, would, <laughs> I would encourage uh, everyone to, Check out the rest of the staff at cbssports.com slash MLB. You know, I think we have a very good staff, a lot of complementary skill sets, and I'm fortunate to be where I am and to work with the people I do. RJ, uh, you are the best. We appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Stay safe, everybody.